welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Micah Schwartzman. I'm the director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia School of Law. Uh, the Karsh Center is a nonpartisan legal institute whose mission is to promote the understanding and appreciation of principles and practices necessary for a well-functioning pluralistic democracy, including the principles of civil discourse, civic engagement and citizenship, ethics and integrity in public office and respect for the rule of law. I also want to recognize the University of Virginia's Institute of Democracy and the Miller Center, which are supporting efforts to understand what is happening in the midst of this election. Today, I'll be moderating a panel with three of my colleagues, and I want to briefly uh, introduce them. First, Naomi Khan is the inaugural Justice Anthony M. Kennedy Distinguished Professor of Law and the Nancy Buck Research Professor of Democracy and Equity, as well as the director um, of our uh, Family Law Center. Her research focuses on families, trusts and estates, and feminist jurisprudence. Her books include, and there are many more, but include uh, Red Families versus Blue Families, Legal Polarization and the Creation of Culture, Mar Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family, and Homeward Bound, Modern Families, Elder Care and Loss, all of those from Oxford University Press. Next, Michael Gilbert is the Martha Lubin Karsh and Bruce A. Karsh Bicentennial Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Public Law and Political Economy. He teaches election law, legislation, and law and economics. Professor Gilbert is a member of the Corruption Lab for, uh, for uh, Ethics and Accountability and the Rule of Law with the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative. And he's published widely on campaign finance law, corruption, and constitutional decision-making. Sai Prakash is the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law. He's a prolific scholar of constitutional law focusing on separation of powers and especially the presidency. His most recent book, The Living Presidency, an originalist argument against uh, its ever expanding power was published by Harvard Press. And his first book, Imperial from the Beginning, the constitution of the original executive focused on the president and the presidency during the founding era. I'm gonna give uh, each of our panelists about 10 minutes to share thoughts about the election, where we are in the process and what to expect. And then we'll have about 30 minutes for questions and answers. If you have questions, I would encourage you um, to enter them into the Q&A function, which is at the bottom of uh, your Zoom screen. And then I'll convey those questions uh, to our panelists. We'll start with uh, Professor Prakash and I will, uh, I'll give him the floor, thank you. Well, it's, it's great to be here with uh, each and every one of you today. Um, am I unmuted now? It's great to be here with you today. Uh, I hope you can see me and hear me. Uh, maybe you'll be better off not seeing and hear me. Um, I'm, we're here to talk about the future of law and democracy. And I, I wanna tell you, it's very bright. It's a very bright future. Micah has asked us to speak about uh, five or 10 minutes. I don't think I'll take very long because I wanna get to your excellent questions. He's asked us to speak on various topics related to the election. Um, the first question Micah asked us to discuss is, well, when is this election over? And I, this question brings to mind a song that uh, I learned when my kids were young, which is the song that never ends. And it briefly goes as follows. This is the song that never ends. It goes on and on, my friends. Some people started singing, not knowing what it was, and they'll continue singing forever just because. And then it repeats. And so this election is very much like that. We've, uh, we've, finished the, the voting phase and we are now in the litigation phase of the election and how long that will last is really a function of um, you know whether some candidate one or the other 
concedes. Um, I don't believe anybody has actually called the election yet because um, I think several states are still counting. And to uh, uh, Vice President Biden's credit, he hasn't claimed victory. He's just claimed that he will win, something that candidates typically say. The president obviously has gone much further and said he has won, which is uh, a little hard to fathom given that the counting is not quite yet over and given that he seems to be behind in most views with respect to the electoral college. Um, so I said that the election will never end. Of course it will uh, perhaps at some point. I, what's gonna happen in the days and weeks to come? I, I suspect that several states will finalize their counts uh, and then um, one or both candidates will have to decide whether to ask for recounts. We've already seen, I think the Trump campaign asked for a recount in Wisconsin. My general sense is that recounts don't change the outcome. They may change the vote totals, but they don't uh, change who won the election as a general matter. And so I don't know how successful that will be. Uh, and then there might be, you know, there is sort of various litigation being pursued by the Trump campaign um, against practices in states that are still counting. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure that those will be met with any success. And the more general question is, you know, for the Trump campaign, how, you know, is it likely that you're going to succeed in, in uh, through a litigation strategy if in fact you are perceived to be behind in all sorts of states um, at the end of the official count, um, are you gonna be able to overcome the perception that you perhaps have lost um, through this litigation strategy? And you know, Al, Al Gore uh, conceded in 2000 and then changed his mind and asked for a selective recount and that you know, brought on an avalanche of litigation brought by the Bush campaign that ended up in the Supreme Court. Um, I don't know if we're going to get anything like that this time around, um, or whether it's just going to be sort of lower level um, disputes about the counting of ballots, uh, the uh, poll watchers that are not being allowed or allegedly not being allowed to observe uh, the treatment of ballots, etc. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of like the the law of counting ballots, another question that uh, Micah asked us to discuss. That's all a matter of state law. The Constitution doesn't require that there be any election for presidents. Um, uh, that's something that states have voluntarily decided to do. Early elections were actually decided by electors selected primarily by state legislatures and not by electors selected through the popular vote. Um, and so it's up to the states to decide to have this uh, popular vote for the selection of their electors. And then it's up to them to decide how to have uh, you know, how to conduct those elections, right? Uh, what, you know, what the rules will be, what the rules of the road will be. And there may be some dispute about whether um, courts are changing the rules midstream in a manner that uh, is supposedly inconsistent with the federal constitution. Um, so, you know, I know that there are some scenarios where people talking about possibly a tie in the electoral college or no, no candidate with a majority. And if that happens, or if, members of Congress uh, somehow come to that conclusion that that's happened even if others disagree, then the, the vote would get thrown to the House and the House would then vote by state delegations. And uh, you know, a majority of those uh, delegations would then choose the president amongst the candidates with the most electoral votes. So I promise to be short, I hope I was, and I welcome your questions. Thanks, um, Mike Gilbert, I think uh, you're up next, thanks. I'm up. Thanks, Micah, and thanks, Sai. Happy to be here. Uh, 
with all of you and with our guests and to have a chance to talk about this interesting and important election unfolding in front of us. Um, I'll just pick up briefly with some of the themes that Sai mentioned. Um, officially, the election will end on the 6th of January. That's when Congress will certify the votes from the Electoral College. Um, but that's a ways away and many things could happen between now and then. And um, uh, one of those things Sai mentioned, it's recounts. So the president has already called for a recount in Wisconsin and that is allowed by state law. The rule in Wisconsin is if the final vote totals are less than a percentage point apart, you can get a recall, uh, sorry, a recount as a matter of course, and the president has asked for that. We might end up with a recount in Georgia as well. You have to be within half a percentage point there and it looks like that is possible, but they're still counting. Um, as Sai suggested, uh, recounts tend not to change outcomes. So just to give you an example, uh, last time I looked, the gap in terms of total number of votes between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in Wisconsin was about 20,000. And the average recount moves around about 200 votes. So the probability of a recount in Wisconsin changing the outcome would seem to be very low. Now, you never know. Election administration is hard. People do make mistakes. But um, the chance of that many votes having been counted incorrectly seems quite low. And same kind of issue in Georgia, even if that's very close, uh, recounts are unlikely to make a difference. Micah asked uh, me or us to address one question in particular related to recounts, which is what is the role of federal courts in that process? And in general, the answer is not much, um, with one notable exception, which is why this question is on people's minds. Uh, uh, and that exception grows from Bush v. Gore. So in the famous Bush v. Gore litigation, the Supreme Court did get involved in Florida's recounts and the legal basis for their involvement was the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. The basic idea was there's an inequality in vote counting methods. And if you know the case or know the facts, it was pretty stark. In some counties, they used one standard while going back and looking at these ballots to decide if it should be counted. And in other counties, they used a different standard. Um, um, and in some counties, they changed their standard as the recount proceeded. So uh, this, rightly or wrongly, the Supreme Court got involved there and by a vote of seven to two, the justices said there's an equal protection problem here. You need more uniformity than this in the recount process. My sense is that in the years since Bush v. Gore, states have done a better job. Uh, I'm sure not a perfect job, but a better job of putting some procedures and plans in place for ensuring that recounts proceed more smoothly and more uniformly than they did then. This has helped quite a lot by technology. If you have ballots that are being counted by machines um, um, and ballots that are easier to use and harder to make mistakes on, the recount gets easier and less controversial. Bush v. Gore was so tricky because they used these punch cards and the famous hanging and dimpled chad and, and so on. And um, these kinds of uh, um, imperfect technologies allow for disparities across ballots and disparities in how you want to count them. Um, I thought people might be interested in some of the specifics of the litigation, at least that we've seen so far. And I'll talk a little bit about these cases. There are, as uh, this is changing minute by minute. So, uh, you know, some of you who just checked the news before you logged on may know more than I do at this point, but I know about a few um, efforts that I'll mention. So first there's a claim by the Bush campaign growing out of Georgia. And the argument is something like this, a poll, a, um, a uh, person affiliated with the Trump campaign who is lawfully allowed to be present while votes are counted in Georgia left the room while there was a stack of ballots on a table 
And when he returned, the stack of ballots had been added to a bin. And the question is whether the stack of ballots that was on that table were in fact ballots to be counted or if they were ballots that had been delivered after the deadline and the state has to keep them, but then ultimately destroys them and doesn't count them. You have to get them in by the deadline. And I know, I don't think there has been no decision by a court on that yet. Um, this seems to me to be pretty small stakes. And as I said, the only evidence that the ballots on that table were improperly counted, there's really none. He just knows they were added to the bin and they might've been delivered post-election. So um, my sense is that that suit is meant to slow things down. It's hard to see how it uh, leads to any change in the ultimate vote totals. I'll mention briefly uh, litigation that's unfolding in Michigan. So um, there are two claims made in state court there and uh, they're related. So the, the first claim is that under Michigan law, you can't count the ballots unless you have observers present in the room. And uh, one allegation in the lawsuit in Michigan is that the state secretary of state and you know, officials associated with that office are in some voting precincts actually, or in some offices counting the ballots without observers from the Trump campaign. Um, there's no evidence mentioned in the filings that I saw. There's not even a, you know, a kind of attestation from somebody who says they were left out. It's just an allegation could turn out to be true, but the filing I saw doesn't have any evidence for it. There's another piece to this that's interesting. Under Michigan law, you uh, campaign officials or people associated with the campaigns are permitted to watch essentially every step of the ballot counting process. And they claim that, well, let me back up a minute. Among other things you could in Michigan and in other places, deliver your ballot through one of these ballot drop boxes. So these are official, locations, they're sort of like a secure mailbox, there are security officers there, or they're watched by video when people come in and deliver their ballot. This is if you don't trust the mail or you know, you're running up against the deadline and you wanna be sure it gets in. So the claim by the Trump campaign is that they were not allowed to see video footage verifying the kind of veracity or integrity of these ballot boxes and they wanna see that footage before the ballots in those boxes ought to be counted. And uh, there's two questions here, uh, it seems to me, at least two. So the first question is whether Michigan law, which as I said, generally does give observers a right to watch the various steps in the ballot counting process, does that include a right to check the videos on the drop boxes? There's nothing in the law that specifically says yes, but as far as I, it's nothing that specifically says to, no, there's a kind of interpretation uh, question there for some judge to handle. Um, uh, my sense is that like the Georgia case, this feels like pretty small potatoes to me. It feels to me like a, um, uh, uh, a lawsuit that is mostly designed to slow things down and is quite unlikely to change the results, but um, time, I guess time will tell. I'll just briefly mention the last and I think the most important and interesting and potentially controversial lawsuit. This is growing out of Pennsylvania. So some of you maybe know something about this. Um, here's the idea. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, relying on the Pennsylvania Constitution, not the U.S. Constitution, has said that voters in the state have a state constitutional right to get their ballots in a little later than election day. Basically, as long as your mail-in ballot is postmarked by election day, we're gonna count it as long as it gets to the office by Friday. And here's the issue, that 
decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, right, right or wrong as a matter of state constitutional law, seems to conflict pretty clearly with the plain language of the Pennsylvania statute. The Pennsylvania statute says you have to get all the votes in by election day, whether you mail them or not. Um, okay, so here's why this gets tricky. Ordinarily, we would just say, well, look, the state constitution trumps the state statute, of course, and the state Supreme Court has the authority to interpret the state constitution. So this wouldn't look to be like a legal controversy brewing. But here's the trick. <laughs> Article 1, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, which of course trumps everything, says that the times, places, and manner of holding elections shall be prescribed by each state by the legislature thereof. So here's the crux of the legal argument. The state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, using the state constitution, has effectively decided the time, place, and manner of holding the election. And that's unconstitutional under the federal constitution, which specifically says the legislature has to do it. Now there's a parallel suit happening in Pennsylvania at the same time. In connection with all this, the state secretary of state has said, if you mail in your ballot, pursuant to that state Supreme Court decision, it gets to us say the day after election day, and we get that mail-in ballot and there's an error. You forgot to write down your date of birth or whatever particular information is required on that ballot, you left it off. Well, you can call the, the office will contact you. You have an opportunity to cure your, the error on your ballot, and we're gonna give you a couple extra days to do that. And it's the same kind of argument here. The US Constitution says the legislature has to decide the manner for running these elections. And now it looks like not only the state court, but now the state secretary of state and executive official is really deciding the manner for running these elections. And in some pre-election orders coming out of the, or decisions, they're not quite opinions, uh, so I would know better than I do how best to characterize these things, but at least a couple justices on the court have indicated some sympathy for this line of reasoning. Something really is amiss here. The US Constitution says the legislature has to do it, and it looks like some other officials are making decisions. Um, I don't know where that's going. Uh, uh, time will tell. It's extremely hard to imagine for me the US Supreme Court weighing in after the fact and saying something has to be redone in Pennsylvania or these, these voters who got their ballots in in compliance with the state court decision nevertheless have to have those ballots thrown out. It's just hard for me to imagine that, but um, stranger things have happened and time will tell. And I think I'll leave it there, Micah, and turn it over to Naomi. Great, thanks, Mike. Uh, Naomi. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Micah, and thanks to Sai and Mike for thoroughly uh, canvassing the legal issues and themes on the table. I'm going to take a slightly different take on the title of the panel, which is After the Election, What Next for Law and Democracy, and go back to, to some extent, the question that, that Sai started us off with, which is when will the election end? And as he noted, the, the voting has ended, and we're now in the post-election skirmishes, but I, I think an even larger issue is that the election shows us a divided America. Now, we've known about the divided America. We, we think we know what the divides are, but, but the, the election, the exit polls that I've looked at pretty clearly show just what that divided what our divided population actually means. Um, as a country, we showed divisions on what issues were important to us 
as well as demographic divisions in who was most likely to vote for either party. And then of course, there is the urban-rural divide as well, very much on display on the electoral map, map when, you go, when you look at counties. Um, first on issues, about two in 10 voters said the pandemic was the most important issue. About the same number cited racial inequality. Um, I, I, in, um, uh, in, in Florida, for example, uh, six in 10 of the voters who supported President Trump were primarily motivated by the economy uh, uh, versus nationally only about a third. Um, again, on the issues of what caused them to, to vote for particular candidates, among Biden supporters, more than one third said racial inequality was their most important issue, beating out all others. So we're divided on issues and on what's most important to us in, um, uh, in voting. Uh, th there's a gender, there's a huge gender divide. There was actually a slightly smaller gender divide gender gap in voting in this election than there was in 2016. Um, uh, that's because uh, more men voted for Biden in the 2020 election than had voted for Trump in the 2016 percentage-wise. Um, uh, the raw numbers from the exit polls hide significant variations by race and education. 91% of Black women voted for Biden compared to 43% of white women. Uh, the Latinx story, which, which has received a great deal of play, 61% um, uh, of Latino men and 70% of Latino women voted for Biden, but there was enormous variation within communities within that vote. Uh, white men college grads were slightly more likely to vote for Biden compared to white female college grads, although within a percentage point of one another. Um, white male non-college grads broke much more sharply for Trump. 67% of white male non-college grads voted for Trump, 30% voted for Biden, compared to women, 67% um, uh, of the white men voted for Trump, 60% uh, of uh, white female non-college grads voted for Trump. Um, interestingly, men and women with children were about equally likely to vote for Biden. Uh, uh, as well as for Trump, but they were more likely to vote for Biden than for Trump. So what does that, oh yeah, and just, just one more statistic on the rural-urban divide. 54% uh, of people who say they lived in rural communities voted for Trump uh, versus uh, so that's 54 versus 37 percent who, who lived in cities. So we can pretty clearly see the, the urban-rural divide. Um, and so what does that mean? Again, going back to the title of the panel, what does that mean for governing? Well, one issue is the, and, and that what this also means for governing is it looks like we are going to have a we're gonna to continue to have a divided Congress, albeit uh, there were some Republican gains in the House, it's still gonna be a Democratic House. And it looks, at least at this stage, like it's gonna be a 
Republican Senate. We have no idea what it will be like in who, who will be in the White House, but we'll certainly have divided national government by, by party. Um, but one, one issue that when everybody comes back is certainly on everyone's minds is the economic stimulus. And so we can expect some, some action on that. A second issue is healthcare. There are now double the number of anti-abortion women in the House, for example. And with a new Supreme Court justice, there may be more challenges or there are likely to be more challenges to Roe v. Wade. Um, at the same time, almost two thirds of states have under the Affordable Care Act expanded Medicaid and Roy Cooper of North Carolina ran his gubernatorial campaign on the platform of expanding Medicaid. So the court will be considering the Affordable Care Act this shortly. Um, uh, and if, it, if the law is overturned, it will be up to Congress to come up with a solution. Um, and then a third issue that I think it's important to mention are local issues. There's a lot of attention to what we're doing at the national level. Um, interestingly enough, there seem to have been there seems to have been relatively little change in the Republican Democratic nature of state legislatures. But there were incredibly interesting ballot initiatives in many states, um, including in Louisiana, an amendment to the state constitution uh, on abortion and an opposite type of ballot initiative or opposite result in, in Colorado, where an effort to limit abortion to uh, a woman being less than 22 weeks pregnant was uh, was turned down. Uh, uh, several states voted for increases in cigarette taxes. More states voted to legalize marijuana. Uh, Oregon is allowing for the decriminalization of possession of small amounts of harder drugs. And there was even a daycare initiative in the Portland area. So we'll see divided government at the national level, and we also see lots of interesting initiatives at the state level. Thanks. Thank you all for, uh, for those discussions and for, uh, for your thoughts about you know, where we are in this election and some of the related uh, legal and now political issues. Um, we have a set of questions. I think we might have room for a few more. If you're sitting out there in the audience and harboring a question, you should still feel free to include it in the Q&A. Um, the first question, uh, I think, Mike, uh, you would address this in part, but I'll, I'll raise it uh, again. And that is, that's the question of whether any of the claims that have been brought forward by the Trump campaign so far are compelling. And I might maybe add on to this question by asking, how come we're only seeing litigation so far on the side of the Trump campaign? It seems like there are a handful of suits now in closed states. Um, and I wonder if, uh, if there's some kind of asymmetry in the early litigation strategy. What's, what's happening there? I'll, I'll weigh in briefly. If others have things to add or if I'm missing something, please, please chip in too. So on your last question, the asymmetry, I don't really know. It's a good question. You might have expected, uh, well, let me say first that I, I don't see any particular reason to think that in general, Republicans are more likely than Democrats to sue over election disputes. <laughs> the stakes are very high. Everybody wants to win. And if you have a thread to hang by, you're likely to grab the thread. Um, so this leads me to wonder, as I think you are, why, for example, isn't the Biden campaign attempting a litigation strategy in, say, North Carolina, where it looks pretty close, maybe close enough that they could make a 
difference if they could come up with something. And I don't know the answer to that. Now, all of these lawyers, or in general, all of these election lawyers look for what uh, people in the business call the margin of litigation. And the intuition is pretty straightforward. Um, uh, in general, even a successful lawsuit uh, built around election law or vote counting processes or whatever is not likely to move that many votes. It's uh, exceptionally rare for a court, for example, to order a do-over of an election. You just don't see that. Um, what you might get is, a, uh, as in the example of Georgia, maybe if they can identify the 53 ballots and figure out if these really were not supposed to be counted and ended up in the wrong bin, okay, okay there's 53 votes. So um, uh, anyway, um, maybe part of the issue is that the vote totals just aren't close enough in the states that the Biden campaign's interested in, that litigation seems like a sensible strategy at this point. So on the broader question of um, compelling, I think the, the big question is Pennsylvania. That's, that's the one where it could really matter. Um, it could really matter because we'll see where the votes come out, but Pennsylvania could well end up being the tipping point state. And there is confusion, I think, even among the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court of what exactly uh, Article 1, Section 4 requires in terms of legislature and, and um, what it means when a state court seems to be making a decision at odds with the plain language of the state statute. That's one to watch. So one member of our audience does ask a further question about this, and I'll just op open this for all of you. But the question is, does the Article 1, Section 4 grant of rulemaking power to state legislatures mean that the state legislature would be free to pass a state election law that clearly infringes upon the state constitution or state constitutional law? I wonder if you have thoughts about how we should approach this uh, Article One argument. Well, I, maybe I'll go first again, but I have a feeling that um, uh, others on the panel know just as much or more than I do about this question of constitutional law. Um, one possibility is that the plain language of the term legislature in Article One of the Constitution literally means what it says. The legislature in the states, each state gets to decide the time, place, and manner of holding the elections. And they get to decide it apparently without any requirements of uh, presentment to the governor. You don't have to follow that ordinary statutory step. And they could follow it without constraint by the state constitution. Um, that strikes me as a really radical interpretation <laughs> of the constitution, a state legislature without, you know, bypassing the state constitution. I mean, you don't even know what constitutes the state legislature without looking to the state constitution. So I, it seems to me there's a kind of, there's really a puzzle here, but, but the strongest interpretation of it or the most extreme interpretation of it really would allow something like that. The legislature could just come in and, and say something. I, I can't believe the Supreme Court's headed in that direction. If I could just chime in just for a second. Um, I hope I'm not muted. Um, I think that this is a great question. And I think the, the first thing we got to remember is this, this the provision at issue here is an Article 2, not an Article 1. Right? Article 1 deals with Congress. And so this provision, Article 1, Section 4, allows the states to set up rules for uh, uh, for the election of legislators to Congress. But there's a separate provision in Article 2 that says something similar with respect to electors, right? Article two, section one, clause two talks about this. Um, as to the specific question transposed to that clause, I, I think there's a way of reconciling con state constitutional law and, and, this, and, and, and this provision. That is to say, what one could say that in 
setting rules for selecting presidential electors, state legislatures should follow their state constitution. But it, it may not be the case that the state Supreme Court gets to decide that the state legislature violated the constitution, right? And, and so the question would be, you know, is there, is there some federal warrant for concluding that these people in the legislature get to decide both the rules and whether they're consistent with state constitutional law? And that might seem odd because people think, well, the courts are going to decide this matter. But of course, that's not necessarily true. There are areas in federal constitutional law, and there are, I assume, areas in state constitutional law where other branches have the final say. And so there's really, there's, to my mind, there's no reason why someone can't say, of course, the state legislature has to follow the state constitution. But uh, the federal constitution provides that these people get to decide, not others. In terms of Mike's point about you know, whether the state legislature means the entity that we typically think of as the legislature as opposed to some other institution within the state, um, the constitution mentions different state institutions, right? The state governors, sorry, the state executives, the state courts and the state legislature. And it's possible to read all those provisions as just referring to the state without regard to any particular entity that constitutes within the state, the legislature, executive, or the courts, which means the states would have free play to assign the function as they saw fit. But of course, it's also possible to think, no, they've chosen this institution for a reason. They assume that it has certain attributes, and they think that those attributes will be useful for purposes of exercising uh, the power. And I'll, I'll just say one final thing. This was an issue in Bush versus Gore, the precise question of who, uh, you know, is the state court changing the election rules? And the Supreme Court ultimately did not have a majority for that proposition. The claim was that the Florida Supreme Court was tinkering with uh, the election rules, that this violated Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2. There were three votes, I think, for this proposition. Uh, the chief wrote something along these lines along with, and he was joined by Thomas and, and Scalia. Um, there might be more uh, or there might be different people who have this view now, I don't know, but that's what's going on, I think, in that case. Now, I think there's still, there's a, there's a more general question, which is, does that matter? That is to say, let's suppose that you do think that Pennsylvania, the, the Supreme Court shouldn't have, quote, you know, changed the statute by, by reference to the Constitution. If there are only 50 votes that come in through that process, it doesn't change the outcome in Pennsylvania, more likely than not, right? So that is to say, even if you think there is a, 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 a federal constitutional violation insofar as you suppose that the state Supreme Court has changed the election rules and thereby not permitted the state legislature to decide how those electors are to be selected, it may not matter to the outcome. And in that case, my, my understanding is it's not the Trump campaign that filed the case. It's some private, it's, it's some individual candidate. But of course, you might suspect that they're acting in cahoots with the Trump campaign, right? Oftentimes, uh, you know, voters will, will file suit when in reality, it's, you know, the, the candidate is deeply interested in, in what's going on. And so in Pennsylvania, at least that particular case, I think it's a candidate for Congress that filed the suit, not the Trump campaign, although I think the Trump campaign may very well be involved in some way. And in fact, the Trump campaign is, has uh, uh, moved to intervene in, in the uh, pending US Supreme Court case. So uh, 
yeah, so, so that's certainly all ongoing. Mike, are you good? Do you want to say anything? No, that's fine. I have, a, I have further questions, although one of those mm -hmm. questions did ask about whether uh, late arriving but postmarked ballots in Pennsylvania, you know, whether there were enough of them that it would make a difference or is it simply too early to know that the answer to that question. I will say I, I don't know the status of, uh, of how many ballots are sitting out there in this category. Um, or whether anyone actually has the answer to that question. Um, let me ask you a, a, another question. We have a, um, a few more from, from our audience members. Um, one question is, uh, is this, um, the, it asks, uh, if, uh, if Vice President Biden wins the popular vote by a significant margin, but the Electoral College by a smaller margin, is that enough to claim a popular mandate? And what are the practical policy implications of that scenario? For example, in relation to presidential responses to COVID or judicial appointments, or I might add appointments uh, more generally to, to the president's cabinet. Any thoughts? I would say that everybody claims a popular mandate whether or not they win the popular vote. So Paul Ryan said that Donald Trump had a, had a popular mandate. And so it's just a trope of political argumentation to claim this, but I, I'd further say, it only has an effect on, uh, on, a, on swing state representatives and swing state senators. That is to say, if you're in a safe district uh, and this, you know, if it's, you have Biden and you're a Republican and you're in a safe Republican district, you don't care about any popular mandate because you will see yourself as impregnable within your district. And the, you know, you can, the reverse is true, right? If, if, if President Trump gets reelected and you're Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you're just not going to care about some popular mandate. So I think the, the, you know, given our polarized politics, given sophisticated gerrymandering techniques, um, the popular mandate is still talked about um, by the victors, but I don't know the extent to which members of Congress really take it seriously. I don't think they do, even if the president actually got the popular vote, which wasn't true for Trump. I, I, would, I would add that we do have, I mean, it looks like we'll have as, as I said, a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. And so whatever popular mandate Biden might claim, and, and I totally agree with what, what Sai said, is everybody, everybody claims they've got a popular mandate. Uh, so whatever popular mandate uh, a President Biden would have is going to be tempered by what he can get through Congress. Uh, of course, he's got executive orders. Of course, he's got all kinds of, of other actions that he can take. But in terms of major legislation, regardless of the fact that he will have, it, it looks like he will have won the popular vote. Um, and I mean, I think regardless of what happens in the Electoral College, he's still got to get legislation passed through Congress. And so it'll then be, as again, as I was saying, it'll then become a, what happens to pressure on senators in their home states and how much, how much pressure they feel to go ahead with whatever legislation has been introduced. This election is unusual um, because of COVID and I have a question from one audience member about that. Uh, the question is, we saw a lot of states making voting easier because of the pandemic and I'm wondering what you all think about whether or not we'll see these steps limited to this specific election during COVID or likely to continue to future elections. 
maybe I'll make a couple comments on that. My prediction is that lots and lots of people in lots of diverse states are going to discover that voting by mail is very convenient and they're going to want to continue it. And my further prediction is that uh, as is often true in election lawmaking and election administration, there will be a partisan slant to this. If in one particular state um, uh, or another, the voting by mail seemed to be used uh, more by one party than the other, and the opposite party controls the state legislature, then this will end up being a temporary measure. I should add too that in the run-up to this election, there was lots of discussion about the unprecedented nature of voting by mail and it's ripe for fraud and it's uh, a method of counting votes that systematically favors Democrats or something like this. There are a number of states in the country concentrated in the West that run all of their elections entirely by mail. These include blue states like Oregon and deep red states like Utah. There have never been any reports of fraud, serious fraud, widespread fraud, anything approaching that um, in the mail-in process in any of these states. If I could just add, I, I, I agree with everything that Mike just said. I don't know enough about the changes that were made uh, in the run-up to the election, but if some state permanently changed their statutes, it's often hard to permanently unchange them. That is to say, if they, if they changed their statutes and didn't include a sunset on the change, then it, it, it's the status quo and you have to go through the process again to change it. On the other hand, if they just said for this election and this election alone, we're gonna allow this, then the burden would be on the proponents of the, of the practice to overcome legislative inertia. And I just don't know the answer to how states did this. I, I don't know whether they did so on a temporary basis or whether they did so permanently, but that would have a great effect on the permanency or the seeming permanency of the practice. I'll say one interesting, and of course I, I agree with everything that, that Mike and I have said, what, one interesting consequence here is that voter turnout, we don't yet have the final numbers, but voter turnout is setting a high in terms of the number of people who have voted. And so that might influence states as they consider what to do in a can't wait to get their post-COVID world as they, as they figure out what to do with respect to all of the, 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 mail, the more generalized available, availability of mail-in voting. And as Mike said, a number of states, red and blue, have had extensive experience, or a few states have had extensive experience with mail-in voting without experiencing voter fraud. And I think we've all learned an enormous amount about how to handle mail-in votes during this election. And so that could quite easily guide future efforts at trying to make some of these reforms more institutionalized. We have a question about the Electoral College and whether it will ever be reformed uh, in, a, in a Biden administration without the Senate or um, if um, President Trump were to win re-election, we would likely be in a situation where and we've had now multiple uh, elections uh, with, a, with an outcome where the president wins in the electoral college, but not with a popular vote. Do, you, do any of you have thoughts on the future of the electoral college uh, and challenges to it or ways maybe of circumventing it? Uh, I'll offer two quick thoughts. You have to amend the constitution to eliminate it. And of course that's exceedingly hard to do under all circumstances. I think it's impossible to do given the current political configuration in this country. Um, at the moment, the Electoral College favors Republicans and you would need a bunch of 
states controlled by Republicans to agree to a constitutional amendment and they won't do that. And I should say that I believe that if the tables were turned and it was currently favoring uh, Democrats and it were up to Democrats and state legislatures to agree to change the electoral college, they likewise would refuse. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of self-interest here. There is an effort underway, some of you may know something about this, called the National Popular Vote Plan, which is an uh, effort to make an end run around the electoral college. The idea is states enact laws in which they say, we will assign our electors to the candidate who wins the national popular vote. And uh, it's just a way of trying to make each state's delegation track the overall vote totals in the country. Um, furthermore, states that have passed this plan, they've all agreed, it's in the legislation itself. This only kicks in if and when a number of states whose electoral college votes are at least 270 together uh, are all part of the plan. So the idea is none of us do this until enough of us have done it that it will dictate the outcome of the election. A number of states have passed this, we are not up to 270. If and when we get to 270, there will no doubt be constitutional challenges and it's not at all clear to me that the national popular vote plan will pass constitutional muster. Just to offer some historical perspective on, on that, this is obviously not the first time that the electoral college issue has reached the forefront. I mean, not even within the past say 20 years. I, 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 uh, Senator Birch Bay in the in the 91st Congress, uh, just after the 1968 presidential election that resulted in Richard Nixon getting 301 electoral votes, um, there was uh, there, there was an effort in Congress to to enact uh, a proposed constitutional amendment that would have replaced the electoral college with a different system. Um, it actually passed the house with bipartisan support and President Nixon apparently also, so opposing party, also apparently uh, through his support behind it, I, it was filibustered to death in the Senate. And so it never made, it, made its way out to the states. But it's certainly not the first time that there have been questions about the electoral college. Let me ask a follow-up also from the audience about uh, electoral votes. If the count is close uh, and there is a faithless elector, is there any way for the state to force that faithful, faithless elector to change their vote or is the faithless vote abided by? I'm, I'm happy to chime in first and I'd love to hear what uh, my wonderful colleagues say as well. So some states uh, purport to penalize an elector for not voting the way they were pledged to vote by a fine. Um, other, other states try to replace the elector before they, the vote is counted and then have someone else vote. Um, several states just say that you can't be faithless but attach no consequences to it. And so it really depends upon state law, right? Whether they have engineered a system that replaces the elector when the elector signals that he or she is gonna vote for someone else other than for whom they've, they, that they've been pledged to vote for. And, um, you know, obviously, if you don't have such a system in place before they vote, you can't possibly undo the vote after they do vote. And, and I, don't, I don't know of any situation where someone has cast a vote under the Constitution as an elector, and then the, the state, after the fact, tries to replace them in some way and change the vote. So the, the mechanisms that states have in place to police electors in this way 
Um, some of them are ingenious and some of them are sort of useless. I mean, a lot of people are willing to pay a thousand dollar fine to vote for Snoopy or whoever else they want to vote for, right? Um, especially where it doesn't matter, right? In this case, it, this election actually could matter. Um, but you know, unless they enact those laws in advance, they're gonna they're gonna be in trouble. I'll just add quickly. Um, I agree with everything with, that Sai said. The Supreme Court recently held that it is permissible for states to pass laws that penalize faithless electors. So it is possible to put going forward more pressure than we maybe thought we could to get them to vote in accordance with their state vote totals. But um, I don't I don't know if that any state has actually changed its laws in light of that recent Supreme Court opinion. Um, there have been a handful of faithless electors over the years, but none has ever changed the outcome of the presidential election. As Sai was just suggesting, if this one's sufficiently close, we live in unprecedented times. We will see. Uh, another audience question uh, asks, how much does organizational skill impact elections generally this time I'm wondering if the discrepancy between popular and electoral college outcomes is entirely due to the structure of the electoral college or is partly due to Republicans being more effective at overcoming the popular vote for other reasons. Well, I'll just say briefly, I, I'm sure there are things going on on the ground, organizational things, one party might be better than another, but my general sense is it's the electoral college that's doing the work. The way the structure is set up, by design, it's not enough to get more votes than the other candidate. You have to get enough votes in enough states. And uh, the way the political stars align at the moment, Republicans have an advantage there. Naomi, did you want to weigh in? Um, I, I was going to ask if um, if the question was also going to how, how come there was such a discrepancy between, yet again, between the polls and what actually happened? Um, I, I'm not sure if that's what the question was, but that seems to me also to be another issue. Um, I, and there again, I, as Mike said, we're looking at the electoral college and representation within the electoral college. Uh, in terms of the popular, actually, and I think it's still too early to know just how wrong all of the polls were, were, but there's a lot of speculation about even in 2020, even after the lessons of 2016, about how polling has just not necessarily learned all the lessons it should about how it does not pick up all of the different viewpoints of voters and of how voters may not be as forthright in answering questions as pollsters have come to believe. So that, that, that also might be part of what's going on in terms of some of, I mean, some, some, of the, some of the discrepancy in the rhetoric that we were hearing before the election about Senate races that would be close about states that seemed as though they would tip more quickly might also be a question of what pollsters were predicting based on their models. I have a couple questions from the audience about the status of litigation at this point. Is it all at the state level? Uh, there was mention earlier about a Supreme Court uh, case. Uh, could you could you tell us a little bit about where where these uh, suits are sitting uh, and to what extent uh, higher uh, federal courts, whether it's appellate courts or the Supreme Court, have have weighed in, uh, and if anything is 
um, pending out there at this point. Maybe I'll go first. I know um, the cases I mentioned earlier in Georgia and Michigan, as far as I know, are entirely in state court. And on the spot, I'm losing track now of the details. I think the claim with respect to whether the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has violated Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution by essentially making election law itself rather than having the legislature do it. I think that is still, I think that is still sitting before the Supreme Court. They declined, the Supreme Court declined to order a stay in that case and to, and to, and to stop the state Supreme Court from extending that deadline, but they have not resolved that case on the merits. And I hope I have that right. And Naomi, I see you nodding. <laughs> Hopefully you can confirm. Oh yeah, I'm just, I'm actually looking at Bloomberg even now as we speak. So assuming Bloomberg is accurate, uh, what it reports is Donald Trump's campaign moved to intervene in a pending US Supreme Court clash over late arriving mail ballots in Pennsylvania, seeking to enlist the high court's immediate help in the disputed election. And the court has asked Pennsylvania Democrats to respond by 5 p.m. today to Trump's request to take part in the case. So I, I, I think it's, I, I could be wrong too, but I think it might be slightly different. I think they denied the stay and the case isn't before the Supreme Court until they filed for another stay, right? And so I think that, that so it's it maybe before the Supreme Court now, but it's because there's some new stay application, not because the entire case is before the Supreme Court. They haven't granted, you know, mm -hmm whatever cert on the case or something as far as like as far as I know it's just this sort of you know interlocutory motion and I am certainly outside of my element in these you know these motions and what have you but I don't think there's like an argument date set for the case or anything like that uh, they're trying to get the court to intervene and a couple of days ago or last week the court refused to do so Justice Alito suggested that the court might change its mind later and I guess that's why the the uh, the plaintiffs have come back to the court and asked them to actually change your mind. We have a few minutes left and a couple of questions about possibilities for electoral reform. So one of these questions is about uh, whether given advancing technologies uh, and their possible impacts, uh, uh, should, um, should we have a review of how states uh, make separate determinations about their election processes. Um, are there underlying benefits to having a variety of election setups throughout the nation? And then a more general question about whether this most recent election suggests uh, any directions for possible electoral reforms. I'll mention one thing maybe. Um, I don't, apologies if I'm jumping in too often. <laughs> I can't, can't tell. I'll just mention one thing now, which is that there's so much talk, there has been so much talk in the lead up to the election about voter fraud. And that talk has mostly or almost exclusively concentrated on the possibility of people committing fraud while attempting to vote in person. You know, I'm pretending to be Psy or whatever when I vote or people engaging in fraud with mail-in ballots. And um, the evidence of in-person fraud is practically non-existent. And the evidence of mail-in fraud is, is extremely limited. And uh, there are sensible reasons to think this. If you commit these kinds of uh, acts of fraud, the penalties are severe. And even if you succeed in them, you get, what, one or a handful of 
votes for your candidate. If you want to steal an election, this is not how you do it. But that is not to say that fraud is not something we should be worried about. It's just we're focused in the wrong place. Um, the place we should be focused if we're going to concern ourselves with this is in the integrity of the uh, uh, voting machines operating in the background that are tallying statewide ballots. So I'll just mention some of people on the call might be familiar with this, a district court decision in a case a couple of years back called Curling versus Kemp. The facts are really startling. A um, hacker, just for fun, wheedled his way straightforwardly into uh, uh, Georgia's voting technology. And he, he had the registration rolls for the whole state on his computer and he could edit them. And everything was accessible. And this person informed the state of this problem and the state took no action. And the federal court uh, suggested that failing to secure the technology operating in the background could, that, that creates a real risk to our collective right to vote and the constitution might require the state to do something there. That's the kind of thing that makes me nervous. I think that the possibility of, I don't know, Russian hackers, that that's a much greater threat than me pretending to be psi. And if we're going to concentrate on fraud in the future, it seems to me we should focus on it where it creates a real risk. Um, thanks, Mike. And thanks to uh, Naomi and Sai as well uh, for participating and for sharing their thoughts with us about legal issues that are arising out of this election and where things stand uh, in some of the litigation that has emerged in the last couple of days. I also want to thank all of you uh, in our audience for joining us uh, today. And before we close, I, I want to let you know that on Monday, we'll be hosting a second event called Litigating the Election, co-sponsored with the Miller Center and the Institute of Democracy at UVA. We hope you'll join us uh, for that event to catch up on legal developments that happen in the next several days. Um, on behalf of the Karsh Center, I want to thank you again for joining us, and we hope to see you at our next event. Thanks so much.